0: the tenuous links podcast home of the golf barons offering bloviated opinions on all things golf discussing the game's biggest problems and some solutions to them as loosely as possible come at some swagger to swing
1: hello barons now imagine having a passion for engineering design and sport being able to combine these every day in your working life and in doing so, rubbing shoulders with the heroes past, present, uh, and emerging. And this is the life our next guest lives. And out of jealousy and pure spite, I'll bring this podcast to a close. Thanks for jo- – <laughs> um, just cause that's my only joke. Tomo, so it gives me great pleasure to welcome two Golf Barons, in fact, back to Golf Barons, mm-hmm. Senior Director of Product Creation. Is that mm-hmm. right?
0: That's correct, yep.
1: For tailor made, Flusher, and I've said here all-round nice guy, and that's to be disputed. But we'll see how we go. Yeah, Mister Mister Tomo Bysted, welcome back, Tomo. How are you going?
0: Great, doing fantastic. Uh, good to be back on again. I don't know if I'm the first repeat guest, but if I am, that'd be great. Um, but definitely, i tell good you, to that talk you are. again. Okay.
1: <laughs> That's right. As far as you know, you're the first repeat guest. In exactly, fact, only, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, our only other repeat guest actually hails from Chicago, is also in the – well, hails from the Gold Coast. Actually, hails from Melbourne. That's a long story. Now, now, where have you been, and do you know where you are now? Because I know we've caught you at the end of a busy work trip, so thanks for your time. Yeah. But where, where are you, and where were you, and where so were you before that?
0: This um, is not New York City. It looks a bit like <laughs> in the background. <laughs> I'm in uh, I'm in Carlsbad, California, um, in my office um, here in what we call the vault at TailorMade. So,
1: have you got a big door?
0: The, uh, my office door is normal, but then the door outside of my office door is fairly chunky. Yes. Okay, um, yeah, uh, but we uh, we uh, this is where designers and our product creation team sort of do our magic and uh, come up with cool stuff. And yeah, this is my office. You see a couple things i have in my office in the background coffee machine formula one helmet some club heads standard standard stuff yeah. um and, and where- you also asked me yeah where have i been so um yeah. i'm happy to report that you know started traveling again i definitely got um a little cabin fever there for a while during covid and i'm so used to traveling a lot as you know phil and i and i kind of um part of it is like doing what i do and, and working on product i need to I need to see people. I need to see how our products working in the field and get feedback and just kind of get a sense of the industry and, and how everything's going and, and being stuck here is not ideal. So, um, it started off, you know, end of last year with a little bit more domestic travel. I was, um, uh, traveling around the U S Florida, uh, Pittsburgh, I went to Oregon, I just in a couple of local trips. And then, uh, and I was in Dallas as well. um, and then this spring started to do some international travel. Actually, last fall I was in the UK uh, back in December, uh, as we were kind of getting ready for stealth launch uh, for Europe. And then most recently, I've been to uh, I was up at Pebble Beach for a little bit, played a little bit of golf there. We had some events, and then we uh, I was also up at the Masters for the first time. You know, all these years later, unbelievable to be at the Masters. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about more about that, but that was will. incredible. Um, and then I just got back from Japan, as you as you as suggested there. I, I was I've been just on the back of a, of a about a week long trip to Japan, so um, which is fantastic too. Obviously, uh, have family there, and I've lived there in the past, and and so being able to go back and reconnect uh, for a little bit was great. So. That's that's kind of my travel for the last six months.
1: And what have you discovered um, most recently about your travels before we get on to Augusta because we need to?
0: Um, you know, it's a little bit more difficult to get around nowadays, especially internationally with the COVID testing before, where yeah. you're there and all the little, the little apps you have to download and in some cases get special visas. So all of that is a little bit of hassle, but it's definitely worth it, obviously. Um, one of the nice things is – and generally speaking, not in the u s. so much, but internationally, the airports are much less busy. So um, just being in the airport, it's a lot of space, not a lot of jostling around. So that's been nice. Um, yeah, but it's yeah, it feels like it's returning back to normal, but most places, you know, not everywhere, but most places.
1: Well, Australia, look forward to welcoming you back then. Um now, how was yeah. Augusta how what? because I didn't know this was your first time. I know you were heading there, but I mm-hmm. just assumed, that you'd been on that junket before. <laughs> yeah, talk me through. Talk me through Augusta from the the first step towards in around yeah. what you learned about it, what you didn't know, and what surprised you.
0: Um, you know, I think like everyone who goes for the first time, especially if you're in the golf business. As long as I've been in the golf business and being an, just a golfer. Um, expectations are pretty high. You know, you've seen mm-hmm. it on TV so many years and it looks immaculate on TV. And I think there's a combination of having high expectations and then slightly expecting to be let down. Like, yeah, it can't be as good as it looks. Surely, you know, yeah. it's like they show the camera angles are all like flattering angles of the course, etc. And then where you can't see, is like a pile of dead leaves or something. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, so I, I had that, that same, same situation. But for me, it was you know, it was one of those quite late on. It wasn't that long ago that I found out that I was going, first of all. So that was a, a nice surprise. And, and uh, you know, obviously with work, we do have a lot of uh, activities going on there. We, um, uh, we have a house every year. Our tour staff stays there servicing the players early in the week. And then we do bring in uh, some customers towards the end of the week to go to the tournament. So I was just lucky to be able to get a spot this time. And uh, maybe cause I've asked about 12 years in a row to go. Yeah. So <laughs> might've had something to do with it. Um, but uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, arriving there, um, it was, the experience right off the plane was, was amazing. First of all, you touch down in Augusta airport and there's a sea of private jets. I mean, that was the first thing it was like, there was like 50 private jets just sitting there on, on the tarmac, which was pretty cool the The airport is tiny. The airport building looks like a clubhouse, <laughs> appropriately. Um, so it's just you mean, think,
1: you mean literally. looks like a clubhouse.
0: Yeah, like the the actual structure of it, and inside, it looks like a bit like there's a pro shop over here, like <laughs> a cafe over. It's like it's like literally like a pro shop. So it was it was, it was quite, quite interesting. Uh, but the whole experience, like driving in there, was it was definitely like you were in a little bit of a different place. The town is quite unassuming, as you know, and. Uh, but actually nice. Like I'd heard maybe that it wasn't so nice, but I, I actually liked that, that town. But, um, but really that first morning arriving on the grounds, um, first of all, like I didn't have a sense of the scale of sort of the, you know, the parking and just the, 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 the size of the event. You, you kind of see the Magnolia lane on TV and you yeah. expect to like, oh, I'm just going to drive up Magnolia lane and i get dropped off. And it's like, no, no, no. Like only players go up that way. We get into that yeah. massive parking uh, center that they have just off the side. Uh, but it became pretty obvious right, right away that um, you were not in a normal golf tournament. You know, I think I've been to a lot of U.S. Opens, Open Championships, um, regular tour events here. And, uh, and this was like not anything like those things other than there were a lot of people there. Um, the, um, you know, everything is quite organized. And I think people are on better behavior generally. I think just because the fear of getting kicked out is, is quite high. Yeah. Um, and it was definitely a sense of famili- familiarity as soon as you walk in you're like oh I know that hole and I know th- yes. but then it also looks different you know it's like that strange thing of well I expected that to look like this or whatever and, and just the space is so much more open than I thought it was going to be just walking through that kind of first little shoot through the trees and you kind of emerge at the scoreboard and sort of that beginning of the first fairway and uh, that part it's very kind of different. Like I, I didn't realize how the holes are interconnected necessarily. I've seen all the holes individually, but, um, but I think the first thing that struck me and I think it strikes everyone that walks in there is uh, first of all, how incredibly busy the, the merchandise store is. There's <laughs> <laughs> a 200 yard long line to just to get in there. And then when you get in there, it's like the mother of all super spreader events. I mean, you're next to a bunch yeah. of people with no masks, and it was like pretty claustrophobic, but, they have incredible product there. So you have to go in there, you have to do it. Um, But then as you walk onto the golf course, it's just as good as you have ever thought it was going to be. The grass is immaculate everywhere. I think just looking down at the grass, it looks different than grass that I've seen before. Um, It's, it's more dense. It's has this sort of almost like carpet quality to it where you can't see any of the dirt. It's just like tiny bits of grass woven together um seems very durable which is like all those walkways across the fairways which you end up going across quite a bit um look the same as the rest of the rest of the fairway even though thousands of people have been walking across it there's no sign of sort of it developing any kind of wear or dirt showing or anything like that like you would get at every other event even that links courses you get that at the yeah. open and things like that um and then you know the little touches like the guys on the tee boxes so part three holes they tee off divots go flying grass i mean there's guys meticulously replacing divots there's guys with like the vacuum cleaner picking up all the little bits of dust so that the next group comes up it's like a pristine tea box again with no leaves or any kind of of that so inconvenience during, during the, the tournament
1: so so yes. so while they're playing the vacuum cleaner guys are there yeah oh, and girls sorry vacuum yeah. cleaner people yeah.
0: uh-huh yeah and they're picking up all little bits of things and actually i saw on on the we were on the 12th for a little bit uh on on the saturday and we saw people you know when when a decent sized divot came up there was a guy who was like giving a divot to somebody sitting behind there (laughs) you want to take it home (laughs) it's a little souvenir from augusta they they probably asked for it but but it was quite i thought it was quite fun they've been asking for it every
1: year for 12 years tom
0: yeah exactly and then i was kind of slightly upset i didn't bring a ziploc bag because i thought that would have been a cool souvenir you know, Tiger's divot on twelve in a Ziploc <laughs> bag in my house. Uh, I'm not sure I would have kept it, but I probably would like some frozen it or something. I don't know, but that would have been cool.
1: Or, or sewn it into your front lawn, and then <laughs> found any good patch. In two years later, if a new nice yeah. patch emerges, yeah, no, that was Tiger's divot.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it had died
1: long ago, but it doesn't matter. Oh, you joke, but yeah. It, it was,
0: that's Tiger's divot right there. Yeah, so it was, it was, it was fantastic. And I think the other thing too, which was great. Um, but I hadn't really, like, I hadn't researched it too much before going Is sort of, the, like, how to spectate, like, where to go, uh, what you see and everything like that. But I I was really impressed with, A, how orderly everything was, despite there being a lot of people there. And then the whole chair system where you kind of, you know, you get a master's chair and you put it down somewhere at the beginning of the day. And you can just leave it there and then come back to it later on and just sit, you know, so you can get a good spot. And no one will sit in your chair or take your chair away or move it or anything like that. It'll just stay there untouched. You got to put your little name in the back of the chair or whatever. But um, I thought that was fantastic. You know, it's just, you can go put your chair on 12T and then you go and watch some other golf somewhere else. And then you come back a couple hours later, your chair is still there, you know, right next to the tee box and you get a good view and you don't have to jostle for position or be like seven rows back.
1: So, um, do they have a Le Mans start then at the start of the day where everyone lines up with their chairs? There's a little bit of
0: that. 12T? You, but you're not allowed to run at so, you so all these
1: power back. walkers
0: yes yes but it's honestly it's not like you'd think it'd be like like just a, a stampede at the beginning yeah but you can get good spots even if you show up you know half an hour later or whatever it's like it's not like you're going to be there at 801 or whatever when the gates open um and also like one th- the, like what i did for example i didn't really plan ahead so i wasn't sure that i I didn't do that first of all i didn't i didn't go there at the beginning and like run to the 12th t or walk quickly to the 12th t i actually bought a chair at at like noon and then i just waited for some of the people that had chairs there earlier to leave and take their chairs with them and then i swooped in and i put my chair in where they opened up a spot you know
1: the chair swoop
0: yeah and it was it's super easy and not like yeah again if if you just pay attention a little bit again you can get a great seat and so we had Um, Saturday we had front row seats essentially at 11th green, 12th tee, and you kind of see them teeing off on 13, which was, yeah, really special.
1: And what hole, having played it, forgetting the whole course, what hole would you say if you were allowed – you weren't allowed to play all of Augusta, but you could play one hole. What hole would you Mm -hmm. choose?
0: I would definitely play 13. Um, I would probably – play it horribly because I can't draw the ball anymore, but <laughs> it would be really it'd be really fun to try. It would be really fun to try. Um, that hole looks so fun and, and you know tough but not impossible to play. So yeah, I would love to play 13.
1: So for you attempting to draw it on 13, would you look Scheffler-esque? Can I ask that question? Is, is that your draw um draw yeah swing a little now. bit
0: a little bit I would I would look a little out of control in the follow through for sure. Cause I'd be trying to turn it over with a three wood or something. Um, or maybe a driver. I don't know. I'm not sure. Cause I, you know, obviously I don't hit as far as those guys. So I probably need a driver to, just to get to the corners. I might try to hit a draw with a driver, uh, you know, which would be quite hilarious and then, uh, hopefully get into a playable spot where I could hit something at the green. That would be, that would be, that would be the goal.
1: But of all of them, but all the thirteen of all the holes, thirteen is the one where you like. I'd like to have a crack at that. Is, is it? Yeah. Is it because it's completely unique to anything else that you've played?
0: I think so. I think it's just a very unique hole, and I think it it it's the one at least for me. When I think back on having watched the Masters since I think since Sandy Lyle won, um, I've watched every single one, and so that's the one that just it just pops into my mind if i think masters i think of all the drama that's happened in that hole and the different shots that people hit off the tee and those second shots going in and people going in the water and all that um so that'll be the one and obviously 12 is cool but i would and i would have picked 12 except i only really get to hit one shot yes, so. that's right.
1: you're gonna haul it
0: <laughs> yeah so it's only one one full swing uh hopefully on that one so uh but that one, you know, I actually watching people play that hole was fascinating. I, you know, in, in person and, and watching the different shots, the trajectories, you don't really get a sense of that on TV of sort of how high people bring it in versus lower, um, and how kind of intimidating that right side of the green is. Because I always felt watching on TV, it's like, why can't they just go for the pin? What's the big deal? This whole it's 150 yards, 160 <laughs> yards, but it's 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 quite it's quite scary looking hole from the from where you stand behind the tee. So it was cool to watch them and just you know, how hard it is because people weren't hitting it close. I mean, at least when I was watching, people were hitting it long left and some people like almost on the bridge on the left and then, you know, a couple in the water. It was pretty uh, It was pretty dramatic.
1: So when you've watched the, the 30 for 30 with Shark, yeah, do you now what? understand a little bit more of his – have you seen that? Sorry, he's the first. I haven't seen it, no. Oh, you haven't seen it yet. Oh, well, when you watch it, you'll understand his <laughs> meltdown on 12. You'll be able to start to say, you yeah, know, I, I can actually see how that happened because it's interesting for a 150-yard hole, With the distance control these guys have, Kipper speaks about and thought it was his secret, as we spoke about in our Masters Rap podcast. That he, yeah, that this the secret of the winds that he was told by Stevie Williams, um, Mm -hmm. the secret of the winds on 12, whereby it swoops up 11 but also back down 13, yeah, and it it pulls. And so, you actually just never know where the wind's going, and you have to look in 15 different directions to try and then have a guess. to understand why 12 is so difficult. Because given their distance control, I mean, you could give them a 150-yard shot and they're yeah. going to be plus or minus. I mean, you've spent time with them. What are they, out of 10 shots, they're plus or minus how many yards?
0: Three, probably. Three. Yeah.
1: Three, yet, yet all of <laughs> three sudden, four yards, yeah. yeah. Yet all of a sudden they're hitting roping hook, 30-yard left yes. hooks, 20-yard exactly, block yeah. cuts.
0: Exactly. It, yeah. it just
1: makes them hit shots that they're not there. Yeah. Um, are you heading to the open?
0: uh probably not
1: okay you're back on we can continue this podcast um because i was about to get very upset now i'm not
0: not sure i i don't think so and i think part of it is um we're strangely like and you know kind of the cadence of the golf industry and product launch it's like there's really no downtime nowadays it used to be sort of like oh it gets busy at the end of the year and the beginning of the year and then you've got this like a little bit of breathing space but now it's there's so many things going on with with just our business and things like that, and unless I have a really good business reason to go to the Open, as much as I'd love to go to St Andrews again, um, probably not going to happen. Plus, I um, at some point need to take some vacation too, so that's probably going to be around that time.
1: Yeah, the Open seems like a reasonable <laughs> vacation. Yeah, exactly. But but maybe we all view things a little bit differently depending on where, how close we are to it. Now, now a little bit yeah. of history. Mm-hmm. Uh, now I want to take you back. To a, a day that you've described as one of the greatest days of your life, mm-hmm. um, and it was playing the St Andrews Beach Golf Course in Melbourne, designed by Tom Doak. <laughs> yeah. Um, yep. Now, Great track. in fact, it's not just the, the 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 whole course. The first hole. I just want you to take us through the first hole at St Andrews Beach Golf Course, mm-hmm. because, as I say, this is mon- was monumental for you. Any yep. me Memories of the hole, the weather conditions on the day, and why, for all our listeners and viewers they would possibly think i'll be bringing this up yeah
0: so this was i had been in australia for about a week at that time (laughs) correct uh i just arrived and um just started my job at Tailor made australia and and i and i think the main purpose of this whole me playing there at all was it was like a welcome to australia tomo thank you for being here blah 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 and then Basically, the whole the whole company showed up, which was cool. So we had a little company outing. Um, I didn't know what to expect. I heard that it was kind of the course was kind of new, and uh, and and nice. And Tom Doke, I think even back then already had a bit of a good reputation. But it was quite, one of his earlier ones. But it was he was like an up and coming architect. So we were so I I was looking forward to it for sure. But it was very cold. Um, I remember wearing um, at least three layers. I think I had this like Merino wool Adidas golf like thing on that really made it kind of difficult to move. I remember like on the first tee and then the worst part is like, no, none of you have seen me play. So I, I was like, I could really just leave a terrible first impression by like topping it off the first tee box, wearing like this massive sweater. Um, but it's a par five. It's pretty straight off the tee. And then it kind of goes up a little bit to the left sort of a blind, blindish, blind ish second shot. Um, I remember. And I also, by the way, had a brand new set of clubs because I uh, obviously came from a different brand. I hadn't played tailor-made clubs before. Well, not Reese, not right away before I had tailor-made clubs back in the day, but, um, I had a brand new set. So never hit him on the golf course. Actually, I think they were all basically in the wrapper still, like they were new clubs. So I'm on the first tee. Um, With my r7425 tp thank you uh 10.5 i um and i remember thinking i really just want to make contact and find it like that was my goal make contact and then find the ball would be like a win um and i remember i I hit it pretty good like it was it was a little fade down down the right side of the fair and i was like i dodged the bullet on that one that could have gone horribly wrong uh and i remember i played with you um and I can't remember who else we played with, but I definitely played with you and, and maybe, um, I don't know if you remember who we played with, who, who was the, I think it was th- at least three of us, maybe four.
1: I've tried um, to block the entire hole out of my life, yeah. comment, but I thought I'd bring it up <laughs> because when I was, next thing to you because I def- yeah. it got better from here.
0: <laughs> it got better from here. So then I hit my tee shot and then we went out there and I was like, got off the tee well. And then my second shot, I remember not really knowing the yardage, I, I, I was trying to find out there was no like stakes or anything, and, and I yeah. kind of eyeballed. I think I asked you, and you said, I think it's like maybe 180 to 190, and it was a little bit uphill. I think the wind was helping though, so I was like, oh, maybe I'll just hit a six iron and see if I can get it, it like it somewhere near iron. the green. And uh, and I hit it, and it kind of went where I was trying to hit it, and it was a good, good, good hit. And uh, I was like, okay, well, hopefully it's like near the green ish. Um, and then we woke up, and it's like six feet from the hole that's right. um, and, and then I made the putt and I made, and it was in a par five so I made an eagle on the first hole that I ever played in Australia so that was kind of a cool kind of a cool start I um, that would definitely give me a little bit of a spring in my step for the rest of that round.
1: Do you know what's funny is that of that entire round that's the, the only three shots of any like I can't remember who we're playing with but I can actually see your three shots because each yeah. one, as it came out of the middle, hurt me that little bit more. And it only needed to hurt me three times because you only <laughs> hit it three times. And one yeah, of them exactly. was five and a half feet. <laughs> yeah. But it, but it was that first foray into Australia because the pressure yeah. of standing on a yeah. tee surrounded by people that you don't know. Yeah. Um, understanding that that everyone knows that you can play, but are they doubting me? I wonder what happens. Exactly. I wonder what happens. And then the beauty, the sound that R four seven. Uh, the, the 425 TP mate, the R7425. Yeah. Um, with the REX Rombax, I think it was. But, yeah, um, I, I mean, it was. Stock it was shaft. Yeah, it, it, was, it yeah. was special. So, your first ever hole in Australia was an eagle. Get it was stuffed, an eagle. Get stuffed to exactly. my it. Now. Yes, that was great. A, a little bit of design, and enough about talking about you. Um, in fact, no, the whole thing is about you. So, Design 101, <laughs> a little bit of of the design. Process So so. looking back, one of the things that that's, I've been learning a lot more about over the last six months and 12 months, mm-hmm. particularly, is about the craftsmanship of where golf was and, and through a gentleman by the name of Ross Baker, who hand makes his own long nose putters and mashies and things, um, mm-hmm. as they did back in the day. Yeah. Um, are engineers today in any way different to the craftsmen back then, or are they just craftsmen with better technology?
0: Yeah, I think one of the biggest differences, I think, now versus then, and, and I, I I have a little bit of a unique perspective on it, too, because I worked with a um, a gentleman called uh, Clay Long, which you may, do you, I don't know if you know Clay Long, but Clay Long,
1: um,
0: he worked here at TaylorMade for a little bit. He, um, extremely skilled craftsman in golf, has been in the industry for, I think, 50 years plus. Um, he built a lot of Jack's Clubs back in, at, in the McGregor days, but... Uh, you know he was one of the i think the one of the last people in the industry who did everything like he he was a shaper he, he did all the stuff by hand uh he does his own cad cnc grinding wedges build. you know sh- like he does everything f- from a to z which i think the difference now is that it's more compartmentalized in the industry like you you um you get people who are experts in a certain field and, and part of that uh, Phil, is because the technology is so much more complex now than it was. Back in the day, it was more of a shaping exercise. Yes. Like yeah. the stuff that they did back even 30, 40 years ago, one guy here could do it. You could, you know, the, none of that stuff was sort of out of the realms of somebody who was good at, good with their hands and had yeah. good eyes and had good golf sensibilities. Nowadays, you have to understand how to run all this different software and how to how manufacturing works and how to cast titanium and now with how how to make carbon faces. And you have to understand materials on such a deeper level um, that it's no longer like a one-person thing. Like you you need experts in everything. And then so like my role now is a little bit of like understanding all of those things while not necessarily doing any of those things myself or very few of those things. Like the shaping part, obviously I do it myself, but mostly it's relying on people who are experts in each of those things and, and leveraging what they do to create the best product we can. And, and that's, I think that's what the difference is nowadays versus back then uh, more than anything else.
1: So there's still a, but there's still a, a shaping element. I mean, there's a point where it's mm-hmm. not all left up to modeling and computer modeling. Correct. There's still a hands on. Well, I like that.
0: Yeah. I think golf is unique in that way. I think <clears throat> when you think about sporting equipment in general, if you think about, um, you know, football or soccer or, Uh, tennis or all those things like you're not really looking at your equipment while you're playing it like you're you're looking at players and you know where to pass the ball and where to throw it or whatever where golf is like you're staring at your equipment like before you're about to make the most important move in your entire day it's like you're looking straight at what you're hitting with so if something about that doesn't look right to you um it's going to throw you off. And I think that's where golf is kind of unique in that way. But that shaping aspect of it, the subjective element of the golf club design is such an important part of it. Um, To your point about if it's all modeling, there's always some things that could be made a little bit more efficient if it looked ugly, you know, in some respects. That's not the same as saying, ugly things perform better, (laughs) which is like, so, and I, and I say that because things people are like, Oh, well, maybe that's why square drivers didn't work Well, square drivers didn't work because the science wasn't good. But, uh, but shaping was also terrible, but part of it, like what we do here is like, we try to make sure that, that those things to marry up. It's like, we don't take, we take the minimal amount of compromise in the technical aspect with the engineering aspect of the club uh, while making the most, the best looking, the, yeah. the club that gives the player the most confidence that's the easiest to align to the target and all those things sounds the best um, and kind of put that all together.
1: Now, how do you strike the balance between developing completely new concepts or applying new technology to existing ideas? So so mm-hmm. in terms of saying, do we reinvent the wheel or right. are we here just saying, actually, you know what, now that we have, and I'll use, uh, and we'll get on to stealth later, but I'll use carbon as an example. Yeah. We couldn't do that before. Now we have this, so now we can. Because as was pointed out to me, a immovable white driver existed in 1894, mm-hmm. um, but they, they also had wood. They mm-hmm. didn't have titanium and tungsten and Correct. Yeah. and steel screws and the ability to you know, press fit and all this. Mm-hmm. And they didn't have um, you know, a lot of the technology they have now. So how much of it is, mm-hmm. is applying new technology to an existing concept and how much of it is actually saying, "Let's go in a new direction."
0: I think it's it, it. comes down to understanding where you are on the technology S curve, right? So, have you heard of the S curve? Where it's I'm about you to. know you have a new technology. Yeah, uh, whenever there's a new technology of anything, there is a kind of a, an early phase where the technology is kind of just becoming uh, viable, right? So it's tri- like electric cars. Like there was a there was many years between the 1980s and really 2012 when Tesla Model S came out where not much happened and there was like a little improvement. It became slightly more viable during that time, but it was by no means mainstream. And that was on the sort of the early part of the S curve that was slightly moving up, but not very quickly. And then when the technology became more mature, battery technology and so forth, then you get on the steeper part where now each iteration becomes significantly more, more um, efficient or better performing than the previous version. And that's a steep part of the S curve. And then eventually you get to a, a plateauing period again where the S, uh, when you sort of, you've extracted the maximum out of that technology, whatever, lithium ion battery in the car example, just to keep using that example, you can only make that chemistry so good yeah. and get, before you have to move on some other type of fuel technology to make the battery smaller and more uh, energy dense, right? So I think the same thing happens with golf equipment. So. Wood had a long reign, but during the wood era, there wasn't a lot of technology that went into it. It was more like just making it slightly different shapes. And I think really when metal was started, that's when really technology came into the game of understanding MOI, COR, um, all those things, and being able to predict durability and sound and all those things. That that That's when technology really came into the game. And so um, with golf, you have to understand, again, where are you? And that's kind of the, what we did when we when we looked at things like, the the steel uh, metal wood to the titanium one like steel when we got to the early 90s like steel is so dense that you can't really can't do much more with it than this so we moved to tie and then tie was on that same curve where the first five or six years of tie metal was they weren't really that much better than steel between sort of 95 or actually 91 was really when tie started to sort of the late 90s um but then once you got into the 2000s titanium just Kind of skyrocketed right like everyone yeah. was doing tie clubs were getting really a lot better every year because we were on that steep part of the curve and then these last three or four years it's definitely started to plateau where you know we're hitting limits of what the material could do we couldn't go any bigger obviously with the rules and so and that's when you have to recognize where you are in that curve before you jump to a new curve right and that's kind of i think when you said hey do we want to reinvent or refine it's like that's i think that cutting the cutoff point is when you realize when when you're on that part which part of the curve you're on essentially is kind of the your tipping point and in order to do to transition effectively you have to start that new one a little bit earlier so that yeah, you, yeah, you know when yeah. you jump onto this new curve you're not in this like long flat period for five years where it's still not very good so that's why for us with the carbon obviously, and we're going to get to south but you know we've had that for a while like we've been working on it we launched that driver in Japan back in 2013. And so we've been working on it kind of in the background to avoid having kind of a long bottom of the S-curve situation. Yeah.
1: So when we talk about, and there's a big push, um, and people don't always declare their self-interest, but about either rollback or bifurcation. Um, Mm -hmm. The USGA have discussed limitations on length, Um, or as people would say, length. Um, There's been some discussion around, you know, is it about COR rollback, size rollback or otherwise? How does that impact, how does bringing in rules and regulations impact on this whole concept of the S-curve? So as we're hitting the peak of development Mm -hmm. with titanium, because at 460 CCs and with Mm -hmm. with the CT as it's required and with COR as it's required, we've hit the peak and then all of a sudden the brakes are put on. Does that force a change in the s or promote thinking to start the next curve you know in that sort of chaos model yeah. the next curve where 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 does that it's a really bad question where does it sit or hit from an engineering point of view when the rules are changed
0: yeah yeah it, it, so that's a I mean it's a pretty complicated question obviously um and so let me try to like frame it the way that i I interpret it and in a way that I, I think I can explain my position on it I think in general rules um can foster innovation. I think if there were no rules, I don't think we would have ended up with the face that we have. For example, because people could have just gone, "Hey, we're going to go really big. We're going to make these bigger faces, and we're going to do all this crazy stuff," and you wouldn't necessarily have to innovate as much to to extract the maximum. So I think rules can have that that effect on uh, a technology, and I think you see that more than anywhere in, in Formula One. Right? You see these cars, and they have tons of rules. But every year they they go faster because yeah. these engineers are really smart and they figure out little things they can do. That again, if there were no rules, they were like whatever. We're just going to put a massive engine on this thing, and we're going to yeah. you know we're going to go. Yeah. Um, so I think the same thing with golf. Having said that, there are obviously uh, situations with rollbacks uh, and certain rules that could come in where it could also put brakes on it. Like you you're working on some new technology um, that is going to take advantage of. A part of the rules or it's going to uh, help extract more out of a certain part of the rules that they're now saying, oh, well, no, we're, we're not going to allow any of that. Right. And that could then obviously like, hey, we're not even going to go into that that S-curve or that technology yes. path. Uh, but more than likely, it will then force you to look at a different one uh, to, again, extract the maximum out of the rules. So I think from an innovation standpoint and a technology exploration standpoint, whatever the rules are, it, there's still going to be innovation. Uh, we're still going to work on. And so, I mean, I'll give you an example right now, which is um, the CT rule, right? CT rule is not the same as the COR rule. And so all the manufacturers now have to think a little bit differently about designing face, the face of the driver. Um, if there had just been a COR rule like there was um, you know, back in the old days, um, things would, have, would be different now in terms of how companies would have decided to invest in technologies around materials and face designs. So that's just one example, but that's definitely a big part of it.
1: And is it exciting? Is there a level of, of interest or the ease prick up um, as opposed to, oh, no, they're putting rules in place or they're rolling it back. It's mm-hmm. now is our time to earn some money. I asked Chris Shell from Mizuno a, a similar question, but from an engineering point of view, if you're told you now have these tighter constraints, it, it does it actually make you say, okay, now we get to really work as an exciting thing? Because I think there's this feeling that, you know, let's let's put clamps on the companies and that'll put yeah. clamps on things as opposed to we've got some of the great brains of the world in engineering working in, in these spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm very big on golf. You know, if the rules are rolled back too far and you lose an yeah. engineer to tennis, they're never coming back to golf. Uh, and there's negative impact. So do the engineers get excited by the idea of limitations because it might open up, as you say, new directions?
0: Yeah, I, I think so. You know, I think the in general, the rules invite curiosity. Like you you just, you're like, okay, this door was closed. What other doors can we try to open to see what we could extract out of, uh, of this technology? And to point, Really smart people are working on this. We have incredible engineers at, at here at TaylorMade, and and they're all constantly trying to make things, um, obviously, be conforming and be legal. But at the same time, thinking, hey, Mister Average Golfer, how can we make him play better golf, and not have to play non-conforming clubs?
1: Yeah.
0: Um, so I do think it's you know, on the whole, it's exciting. Obviously, there could there could be rule changes that that you know <laughs> put a damper on things quite a bit. Obviously, and. And I'm not in any way promoting any rollbacks. Um, but I think it's um, having a framework like the rules that we have, uh, it challenges engineers for sure. And I think if there weren't challenges here, I think it would be less exciting for engineers to work here. Um, yeah. And again, like when I think about some of the more recent things, and obviously because they're, it, they're having more recently that pop into my mind, but like working on stealth uh, technology, you know, one of the things that, was really cool i I was i was um talking to one of our um very sort of probably the leading expert in-house here mark greenie on carbon technology and he's been working on the carbon phase since 2001 like he's literally worked on this for 20 plus years and you know he 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 goes to these conferences for carbon fiber you know around the uh, around the world i think they're in paris usually every year I, i don't know with COVID, but He'd go to these and he'd learn about what's the latest and greatest in the industry, what are other industries doing with carbon fiber and so forth. And one of the one of the things that I think would have never happened have it had had we not had these rules is the extent to which we wanted to refine this technology. Because and I'll give you an example, Phil, about you know, one of the ways that, that we have to make the face um, durable is to have no voids whatsoever in the carbon fiber. And, and carbon fibers, when you lay them up, in shafts or whatever, they're, they're somewhat prone to having tiny air bubbles um, in there. And Mark was telling me a story about how he went to a conference and he was looking for technologies to detect voids in carbon. So there's some sort of scanner, like ultrasound type stuff, like right? uh, they can see inside the material and see, hey, no, we've got an air bubble in here. That's that's going to be a problem. And, you know, he would talk to people that work, you know, with maybe with Boeing or with car companies. And they were like yeah no we have scanners we have this and that and and he said well how how small a thing can they detect and he said they said well it can go down to the size of like a penny <laughs> and we were like and he, and mark was like well we need sub millimeter detection yeah. <laughs> like yeah. Yeah, not right. good for a us, penny's right. not so good <laughs> yeah it's not so good for golf um and so he ended up finding a solution of a scanning technology that they use for microchips um Intel and these guys use it to scan microchips for for defects, and so that's what we use on the stealth phases instead of the stuff that Boeing or Formula One teams would use to scan, you know, much bigger carbon yes. fiber pieces
1: because of scale.
0: Um, because of scale, and that's and that's the crazy part about you know, and I try to explain stealth technology to people. It's like, yeah, it's carbon fiber, but it's not like anybody else uses carbon fiber. This is not like cut and paste from Formula One yeah. suspension system or um a wing element from a airbus or a boeing 787 this is a, an entirely new thing again why it's take, taking so long to develop and you have to find new solutions and again i don't know if we would have gone down those roads had this whole thing been easier and we had didn't yeah. have as many rules and we didn't have as many restrictions on what we had to do and we had to try to extract you know another mile an hour of ball speed or two miles an hour of ball speed And these are the lengths that we go to to do that so it's pretty um, cool it's fun to work on to be honest
1: yeah so i think sticking um to stealth, the, the i've got a couple of questions one one about sort of is the design story and the backstory and i think you've covered a lot of that is that here Mm -hmm. was an idea that that someone just grabbed and said no no this is going to this is going to work just give me 20 years um but it's going to work have faith yes but but one of them is the importance of japan and you mentioned the fact that you released this driver in in 2013 Mm -hmm. and the importance of japan historically as almost a test market because it, it everything was so technical, and we think about from a tail-made point of view, XRO five CTI, yep, or glory. Exactly. I'm still not sure if you call it glory because it's spelt a bit mm-hmm. weird, but or yeah. gloire. Um, mm-hmm. But but these models and the fact that there was carbon face in Japan in a driver nine years ago. Mm-hmm. It, does Japan still have the opportunity and still exist as that advanced technology market, or is it now so homogenous that that that's been taken away a little bit, and, and are we better? for Because there was some cool stuff that was done for mm-hmm. Japan historically that you just couldn't. Yeah.
0: Find. You know, honestly, that's, that's a really good question and, and one I haven't really had before or even thought about much. But it is a good point. I think, you know, one of the things that made Japan unique in the past, and, and I'll get to kind of the present, but in the past was, you know, it was relatively isolated. So before social media, um, there's was really no way for the average American golfer or Australian golfer to know what was sold in Japan, unless you went there and you went to a golf shop and you're like, Oh, look at these clubs. These are crazy. Um, so part of it was you could launch stuff there that was different from what you had in other places as a little bit of a test. And you mentioned a couple of clubs that, that were unique that we did again as a bit of a test. Um, without it sort of causing any ripples elsewhere, you know, like, why are we getting those? And how come we don't have the XR05 CTI in America? No, like literally zero people asked that question. So, um, And so I think that that's part of it, that it was isolated. The other thing was, um, those kind of products are great for the Japanese market in general, because the Japanese consumer is very technical. They, yeah. they read very technical golf literature. Um, they, um, they're almost obsessive about learning about their equipment understanding all the little specs. Uh, if you look at Japanese golf per, uh, equipment websites compared to Western ones, they have a lot more specs listed, yeah, static weights different. of clubs, CG angles. Like they have a lot of stuff that the Japanese consumer cares about that Western golfers haven't even heard about. So it it, it all, it's all it also catered really well for that audience. So that those two things together was like made it a perfect kind of test bed. And the, I would say the third thing was in general, Japanese golfers, and of course I'm generalizing here, but they have slower swing speed than Americans or Western uh, golfers. They're just small in stature. They don't, they're not as strong. So you could test things there that maybe were borderline in durability. Okay. you know, And things like the Carbon Crown on the uh, XR5 CTI, I'm not sure if we would have been super confident in launching that in the US. Now, I wasn't working here at the time, so I can't say whether or not it was. Maybe it was Bullets, well, I never I'm came not sure. Him. Yeah, but... You know, like if you're going to put something out there that that is really cutting edge, um, that's a good place to put it out there because it's it sort of you can test it out and then see how it performs. And if you have a bit of an issue or it doesn't perform as well as you thought, it's not a big miss for the company. We can like, okay, well let's not do that again. So this the the the, the that club that we launched the XRO five that one didn't really have a successor. We didn't launch another carbon crown driver until yeah. the M one. So we were like, well, the, the benefit was pretty minimal back then, and the way that we were able to make the carbon crowns and additional costs, et cetera. So we didn't end up doing that. But um, And then, fast forward to, to Glory 2013, again, very bold concept. It was a little different from Stealth in the sense that we were trying to make a very forgiving driver with a huge face. And we thought, hey, if we use carbon for this, we can obviously save a lot of weight and we can yeah. uh, make a big face. So, a little different idea. but But basically, again, proving out the technology not only from a consumer acceptance and consumer performance standpoint, but also from a manufacturing, like how do we mass produce something like this? And is it even possible? So, um, and but I think nowadays uh, when you think about how much more global everything is, yeah. it's a little more difficult to do that. Like if you launch something in Japan now, everyone will know about it like the next day. <laughs> so, um, yeah. so it's a little bit harder to fly under the radar. Like we deliberately, some of those projects product we didn't really, market a whole bunch because we, we kind of wanted to keep that so, somewhat quiet a little bit and uh and even like you and you remember i'm sure back in your tailmade days like we had all those iron sets as well that we did in japan really cool forged cavity backs again yeah. cool limited run price point would have been too high for western market it would have confused the lineup i think where we were trying to be a little more streamlined but in japan those things really resonated with people uh but if you look on our japan website now it's Pretty much the same exact product as you get in other countries, except for the uh, glory line, like you mentioned. So, um, catering to again a little di- different demographic than we have in other countries. But yeah, it's I, I do think it's that has gone away a little bit because of that reason.
1: So, is there anywhere left um, that you can hide? I mean, like, is it taken away a really important development step, um, losing that that market, or you just do you just find another way? Sorry, I don't want to get bogged down on this. Or do you just find another yeah. way of of getting a job done which is
0: i think honestly we we have we have such a more sophisticated testing method now that we don't really need to do that anymore okay. i think that's the biggest takeaway for me is that we uh, the way that we're able to simulate i mean obviously all the simulation software and stuff like that and, and just the methodology of how to predict performance virtually is at a totally different level now than it was even five ten years ago yeah. Okay. Um, so that's a big part of it. And, and um, but even with like player, human player testing, so we, we test, um, I would say almost every single day uh, we have player tests for different products and we have, you know, we tested with different kinds of players. We don't always test with good players. We test with slower swing speed players and things like that too, to get the feedback that we would otherwise get from the Japanese consumer.
1: And how do I get my name on that list?
0: Um, just uh, the my number there in
1: the <laughs> <You're right>. Just <laughs> ring someone who knows. There's, someone.
0: A, cu- there's a couple of NDAs you have to, and you have to be available pretty much every day on a weekday to hit balls, um, and you it's won't just, get paid. Oh. So other than that, it's great.
1: Yeah, right, I'm <laughs> in that unique position of, of being tall and a slow swinger. So, um, what's the importance, therefore, with with stealth of tour, of, tour of validation? And it's interesting the timing of your first visit to Augusta mm-hmm. um, with. Sheffler getting the win yep. with something you'd been so intimately involved with in his bag. But how important is that? How important is tour validation to the product? But also, how important was that to you personally to not only get its first tour win, but to see it win on on what some would argue is the greatest stage or second stage after the Open.
0: <laughs> Let's be straight; it is the greatest stage, just just to put that out of the way first. Yeah, um, yeah, but yeah. no, I think I think it was very, um, you know. It, I would say, like, the, the whole thing with stealth here and within the walls of TaylorMade, um, I think the, the sense was that this was the biggest group effort project that we had ever done. Like, this was, because there were people had, that had worked on this that are no longer here, that we started this 20 years ago. And the amount of people in our R&D that have been involved with this over the years is a huge number of people. So there was definitely like a massive collective feeling of like we're in this together and this is kind of the result of a lot of hard work. Uh, and then so for me personally, I, I, I felt responsible a bit like, hey, like, I really hope we get wins and I hope yes. tour players adopt this product. Um, because I think of myself as like, you know, I'm running in a relay I'm, and I'm kind of one of the last guys to get the baton and I'm, I'm kind of running one of the last legs uh, of that, that race. But if so many people have got it to this point and yeah. Uh, so yeah it's hard to describe honestly like when i when we i think that the masters for me had two sort of big highlights one was seeing tiger tee it up and seeing him at, at augusta it was always a dream of mine regardless of sort of what he finished or how he played or whatever but just to see him out there and and hitting the ball actually really well um was was so was so cool and and clearly that's what the, all the augusta patrons are feeling like as well because the the crowds were like 10 times bigger around tiger whatever group he was in versus really yeah. anyone else's yeah. group so clearly that's kind of where everybody felt but also with with scheffler and you know with scheffler too like i've never worked with scheffler i i i don't know i don't think i've ever even met him in person um and i obviously saw him at augusta but um but for him to come onto our team and he's been you know working with our team for a while like he's played our clubs he's played the tw irons for a while he's played our, our driver in the past he's played sim he's played uh ferry woods and things like that and he's been in and out of them since he was a non-contract guy but you know he obviously wanted to join our team and he's seen um you know the the level of performance that he's seen from from other guys that came over from that kind of that no contract zone Yep. um like tommy fleetwood for example who's really gotten a lot of support from our guys and really has been able to kind of really diagnose this game and get to the next level um, by having our team. So getting him on board and then seeing him at the Masters play so well, uh, I mean, it was it was hard to describe. Phil, it was so cool. Um, I didn't watch the final round in person; I watched it on TV, um, but it was it was still goosebumps, honestly, yeah. um, watching that happen. And then, you know, the tour validation piece of Stealth was was big, and I and I feel like it had all already happened prior to the Masters. To be honest, I, I felt like the fact that all of our big, big players instantly switch to this product and having worked on them last year we showed this much earlier by the way to our tour players than normally normally we show them in like november
1: yeah.
0: um with cool. our new drivers and it's kind of a little bit of a surprise this year um we wanted to be ready make sure we got hit the season um sort of hit the ground running so we started back in like june last year i think wow. we already had prototypes um where you know, we, we were able to get in front so just to kind of warn them up to it and get early feedback and any kind of like last minute tweaks to the product that they needed. But so I knew as soon as like we hit Kapalua with Khan playing the driver and then as we got to the West Coast, um, farmers, etc., tons of players were winning with it. Swafford won early on mm-hmm. in the year, non-contract guys. So we had a lot of just really good successes early on. So I felt like that already kind of validated that this was it was not a gimmick or it wasn't a kind of flash in the pan. So we were excited about that. But then obviously to get a major on the first try yeah. of a brand new technology, I mean, you couldn't write the script any better. Uh, and the fact that Shepherd had been on our team for five weeks, five whole weeks at that yeah. point, um, was kind of a Cinderella story to be true.
1: And what strikes you, just the last question, particularly on stealth, because I want to get into some nine dropping. But yeah. what, <laughs> what, what strikes you most about the driver? You know, if, if there was one thing, about the stealth driver particularly because the fairways are are, are cracking and I want to talk about products under the radar but but what's one thing that stands out to you with the driver when you first hit it
0: uh most people would say the sound is surprisingly good I think a lot of people when they hear it's got a carbon face they feel like it's going to be muted or you know it's going to be like other carbon things that they've hit before and it's not at all. Uh, it, it's explosive sounding. It has a, actually quite a metallic sound to it. Yeah, yeah. Um, in many ways, a kind of signature tailor sound, which, I mean, that's the first thing that certainly a lot of our tour players said when they first hit it, because they would, I remember when we had Sergio, for example, hit it first, he saw it. He thought, like, we left a sticker on the face. He was like, oh, did you guys leave something on, like, what is this? And we were like, just hit it. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. we didn't tell him anything about it. And he was like, wow, this thing sounds really good. Um, so I think that's the first thing that people maybe it's just because it's a surprise a little bit, but it sounds fantastic. And then if you know your ball flight, and you know, it It definitely comes off really fast. And then if you have the help of a launch monitor that validates it pretty quickly. And so I've been privy now to probably a 100 plus kind of fittings and or seeing people that getting fit and just seeing people's eyes light up when they go, I've never had 170 mile an hour basket before, like what's going on? You know, that, 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 that sensation was super cool. And like having, again, so many people having that same experience. I would say those two things were uh, the things that jump out for me.
1: Um, so then last, last question, particularly on, on Talamide. what, what product flies under the radar that from an engineering point of view, you're there mm-hmm. knocking on marketing's door saying, give right. it something more than this. Cause you've got no idea how good this is.
0: Wow, you're really trying to expose a rift between me and the marketing team yes. here, I can see. So, I yeah. am, because I think they see things
1: <laughs> they see things differently. And, it, and I recall a conversation many years ago that I've um, mentioned to you about having a conversation yeah. about golf balls when I was with mm-hmm. Topflot, about yeah. dimple patterns. And I had the mm-hmm. conversation with their marketing guy that you know, um, mm-hmm. the wheel, uh, Ferris wheel, and um, and then one of the propeller heads. And so I got marketing. And then marketing left, and the propeller heads both said to me and looked at me and said, "That's not it. This is the answer." But but right. it's not a cool enough story, mm-hmm. so I don't want yeah. to expose a rift. But I want to know what yeah. product. No, I... I mean, I will expose yeah. a rift if I need
0: to. Yeah, I mean that honestly. That it's a it's a pretty easy question, honestly, um, because and, and 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 let me preface it by saying I don't think anyone's. Not doing this because they don't want to talk about it. It's just this is the nature of running a business like this of having a ton of incredible products yeah. and having to allocate how you talk about them through marketing in a, in the most efficient way possible. So I, I get it, but I think th- to me the the most sort of underrated product is probably our Stealth Plus Fairway, our Tie Fairway. Um, that club is insane. Like it's like people that have, have that really know fairway performance and they've hit that club uh, and if you benchmark it, I mean, honestly, you can take this club into the hitting bay or to the range where the launch monitor with against any other fairy wood ever made and it will blow its socks off. It's so good um, and we don't really, you know, we don't, again we don't have a lot of bandwidth to talk about a, a, a fairy wood that, to be fair, is, is very expensive, right? It's, yeah. There's so much technology in this club. It's never going to be like a super mainstream club where it's like everyone's going to go and get one like Rocketballs was a little bit like that, but Rocket Balls was no more expensive than the other Fairwoods out there. So it had great performance. And so a lot of people bought it. Yeah. This club is, is sort of that Rocket Balls moment of, it just beats everything hands down. It just happens to be like a hundred dollars more expensive um, because of the technology in it. But it's, you know, it's funny when you go on tour and you look at people's bags. And again, we have, as you know, we have a lot less contracted guys than we used to have back in, Again, when even when you were with TaylorMade, yeah. and so um, our counts are, are reflecting that. But Fairy Woods are in so many people's bags that are either contracted to other companies or not have no contracts because on tour it's a it's not a, a very well kept secret. But everybody knows our Fairy Woods are the best. So that's one of those clubs that um, again, if you really care about performance, if you care about distance, launch, trajectory, that club. Uh, cannot be beat, and, and I think it looks and it sounds great on top of that, which is like the subjective things we talked about. But just from a sheer engineering, the how low we can make that CG and how hot the face is as a as a combination, um, it, it's unbeatable.
1: Yeah, well, just so you know, I've had people from you know, competitors reaffirm that. Mm-hmm. Um, now, onto some name dropping, because <laughs> okay. there's, there's there's not a lot to go, but these are the good things. Who's the best ball striker you've worked with? I would
0: say irons um, tiger for sure um, and and I, again I don't want to come across um, too humble here but I haven't worked a lot with tiger I, I've, I've only been at tour shoots with him and and seen him hit balls I, it's not like I've been like hey tiger let's let's grind on your iron setup I've, I've just seen him hit balls so um, but as an iron player over the years and I, and obviously I've watched him mostly later in his career and I, I know, Historically, his iron game, statistically, if you look at all the numbers, has been obviously incredible. Um, But we actually have a lot of really good iron players on our staff that uh, I've been privileged to to work with pretty closely. And and guys like Rory. Rory actually is is through the bag. His ball striking is insane. Uh, The other guy that I was really impressed with that I just worked with a little bit uh, this last November for the first time. I just met him was uh, Lucas Herbert. Yeah his ball striking on with his irons is also on another level it's so pure and his trajectory control yeah, is amazing. something to marvel at i mean the speed he has and and how low he hits it and just the right window the speed the speed control uh, he he he's on a different level too i think than than a lot of players i think i really admired what he could do with irons
1: the king of leg he's got a he's the king of leg and yeah. he's got his coach dom is a king of leg coach because he's coached on as a party was ultra lagger and you can just yeah. see the teaching and also the attitude and everything else yeah. coming through. Um, who would we assume hits it better than they do?
0: Oh, wow. Uh,
1: Not to get you into trouble. So, but- no, I mean, I, I think,
0: you know, when I think of that question, I, I, I like to frame it up as like, who is extracting the most out of their game, okay. you know, or their, or their kind of natural ability. I, I think, for me over the years uh, would have to probably be Jason Day. I think Jason he he was good because he worked so hard at his game. And I don't think he necessarily had the natural talent of some of the other guys like Roy or Tiger, but he got to number 1. You know, he, he has determination and you know the difference when like when I saw him hit balls and maybe he wasn't on top of his game or was not even like maybe not in game mode. He was just like, you know, off off weeks and we were working on something wasn't that spectacular but then you watch them in a tournament or you watch them warming up before a round at a major i mean he was incredible so to me it was that was a testament to like the focus that he has yeah. um, and just yeah he, he impressed me a lot just in his work ethic and just what what he can do
1: who would cope best if all the rules were rolled back to 1979 and they could use metalwoods, but okay the original, like who who, who do you the think is that who who do you think would cope the best I mean that's probably one of my worst questions. And gee, I've asked some. I I think
0: I think it's a tie between um, between DJ and Rory on that one. I think I think you, you want to have somebody who can hit it pretty far, um, and who's hits it extremely solid because obviously there was not a lot of forgiveness in clubs back then. So you need somebody who just finds a center of the face every time. The other guy actually who would do really well is Sergio. Um, Sergio is a just incredible, incredibly precise ball striker, and uh, I have a I have a separate. We can talk talk about it some other time. Maybe over a beer. I have a separate story of, of watching Sergio hit on a high speed camera, and the level precision. I don't know if you did. You see those videos where we did just we had on our website recently, where you see those like slow motion shots of the self face and the yeah. and the and the balls. There's one with Rory. There's a couple ones. The I was there when Sergio filmed, filmed his thing and. He would hit it within like a millimeter, time after time, and, and he and he would t- he would say like, "Oh, I think I caught that high in the face." He would go <laughs> back and look at the footage. It was like half a groove above center face. I mean, it was unreal how wow. good his ball striking was. Like there was nothing that wasn't out of the middle. Because we we basically said, "Hey, we're going to use this. It's going to be very slow motion, twenty thousand frames a second. It's you got to hit the dead center of the face, or or you're going to see you know this yes. whole thing going on." So he be like, "Hey, no problem. Boom, boom, boom. Five, six shots." And again, not
1: to name any names, but that wasn't everyone. So that was yes, don't put definitely. anyone in it. No, um, exactly. But I've got to make yeah. a note anyway. for I've got to make a note for Dave at Hook Media to invest in a camera that can get us twenty thousand frames a second. Because I think it'd be hilarious to see how much it does and deflect. For a twenty marker though, because you mm-hmm. spoke about glory. I don't want to take you back, you spoke about glory and the reason that the bigger face to make it more forgiving. Mm-hmm. For a twenty yeah. marker or a twenty-five marker, or even a mm-hmm. ten marker, mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. get this understanding of how much deflection is going on. Yeah. to then overlay exactly what it looks like if you can hit it pure time after time after yeah. time. I think it'd be fascinating. So I'm just going to make a note yep. for Dev to purchase make a 20,000 frames per second camera.
0: By the way, those cameras, it's a phantom camera. You can't buy them, but you can probably rent them. There's national security concerns with having those things because <laughs> they are used for like missile testing and stuff like that.
1: Dev, you're going to have to get onto ah. ASIO. Yeah. Um, and who do you still... Sorry, last two questions. So, so best non-golf. Golfer, or best non-golfer, golfer, golfer, best non-professional golfer that you've ever come across, and if there's not one, just dismiss that. I just wonder whether or not you get all these big-wig celebrities coming through, and you—that's my perception of your job, Tomo. You just sit on the range and shake hands and kiss babies. Um,
0: You know, to be honest, I don't—I don't work with a lot of those guys, but I have had the 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 good fortune of, of working with a few, and the one that springs to mind from recent. Experience was Ken Griffey Jr., <laughs> who is probably not a household name in Australia. He, he definitely some... is a household name here. Um, obviously, um, Hall of Fame baseball player, incredible record um, in, in baseball, and he's definitely a legend over here. Um, so he he was here for a fitting, and and as luck would have it, three or four other people were not available. So I'm sort of the the D player that they call in. You know, <laughs> yeah. Um, Anyway, so I, I got the good fortune to work with him. And um, and he was a guy who, you know, I I didn't know how good he was. And, and it, he's not like an incredible golfer where he's shooting like mid-60s or anything. He, he's around scratch. Uh, so a very good player. But the level of ball striking that somebody who plays baseball at that level can do is astonishing. You know, you can have all the typical kind of like slights swing flaws that when you transition from one sport to another that you see with like cricketers for example you're gonna have the kind of traditional things that are hard to kind of get out of your golf swing because they're in the other swing right yeah so he has some of the baseball things like that hits down on it a little bit but he plays the um p7 mbs which obviously are pretty hard to hit and whenever i see somebody who is not a tour player with p7 mbs i'm always automatically skeptical of like should you really be playing those yeah. Or is, is it more of a vanity play? Yes, there you go. He should 100 percent be playing those. Like he did not miss the center of the face with a single six iron shot that we hit. And again, why is it surprising that a guy who can hit 100 mile an hour fastball can hit the middle of the face of a muscle back? I guess it shouldn't be surprising, right? <laughs> so, but that was impressive. I mean, just to see yeah. somebody who's not a pro golfer never really miss the middle of the face. Um, that I, I mean, I only see that on a tour. If he practiced yeah. more, I'm sure he could he could play some seriously competitive golf.
1: It is incredible. These multi-sport athletes are uh, yeah. insane. Incre- they are insane. That's probably the word yeah. for um, Now, I want to finish with uh, this is the key thing. So last year we revealed the Golf Barons Cup. Mm-hmm. And the Golf Barons Cup is a new team event for anyone who doesn't okay. know, whereby it's similar to the NFL special teams. in the, mm-hmm. Just as you have a punter and you have a quarterback and you have – so people play yeah. positions. No one plays all positions. So in golf, we yep. play all positions. The quarterback has to it yeah. to himself. Yeah.
0: Right. So
1: this is your team. You have a five-man uh-huh. team. You have a driver
0: mm-hmm.
1: who only drives the ball. You yep. have an ironer. Mm-hmm. You have a a shorter or a short-game player. You have an escaper. Yep. Uh-huh. A- and then you have a putter. Right. So this is your team. And this is what the, the PGL, when it finally gets up, this is going to be one of their mm-hmm. team events because they've already contacted me. Uh, potentially, I mean, okay. about wanting to put this into place. Yeah. So I need to know uh, who okay. is going to be your dedicated, and only one person can take each spot. I want to know okay. who your ironer is, who your who your driver is, who your shorter is. I need your escaper,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I need your putter.
0: Okay, so I'm going to go – I'll go in the order that they sort of pop into my mind. Uh, short game, definitely Tiger. Um, I would I would have put him as the iron guy in his prime for sure. Um, but I'm going to have to put Colin Morikawa as the iron guy um, just based on how good he is today. You know, like out there today, Colin cannot be beat with an iron in his hand. He's so incredibly good. Well, they are playing so tomorrow that me, this team. So. Yeah, so that leaves me with a putter, a driver, and an escaper, right?
1: Yes, yeah, the escaper, yes.
0: So the driver thing is really tricky because we have – it's it's a it's a it's a really close fight between Rory and DJ. Um, and if I'm picking today, I'm gonna to go Rory. Mm-hmm. I think Rory is is the best driver of the golf ball um, on the planet today. I think he's yeah. just sheer athletic ability, what he can do with it with the size of that he is and how far he hits it is absurd. So um, I'm loving my team so far. Now I gotta find the escaper and the putter.
1: You're going to need some celery cap room. That's what you're going to need.
0: Yeah, and I, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna go Scheffler for the putter. I mean, he, uh, and you know, I'm going mostly off of his recent wins and how he putted at Augusta, knowing how ridiculously hard those greens are to putt on. Um, Scheffler for putting. So that's my that's my uh, fourth one. Escaper. We have a. I would say a bunch of good guys. The one, I, the guy I like who's, I think, sneaky good at escaping. Um, there's two guys that come to mind, Sergio and Fleetwood. And I might go, just to mix it up a bit, I'll go Fleetwood on that one. I think Fleetwood has a great imagination, good hands, and cool under pressure. He'll, he'll think his way out of there and, and won't get too flustered.
1: And you've just said that he's always in the crap, so he gets very good at it, which is which is <laughs> which is fine. And then I will leave you. I want to ask one last question: If yeah. there was one player on tour that Talamai does not have, that they mm-hmm. could if they would, or that you could if you would, or if you are right. forgetting Talamai, that you would want, yeah, um, who don't you have that you'd love?
0: Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna discount kind of up and coming guys that you might have not heard of. So. Current crop of PGA Tour players that we don't have that I would like to have on the team. Um, you know, uh, one guy that I really like um, is Victor Hovland. I think he great personality, great ball striker, great player. I think he would be an asset to anybody's uh, roster of, of talent. I,
1: I like him a lot. This will come as no surprise. And to he you. may
0: and he may or may not use one of my. The clubs that I worked on <laughs> right. with our team, so
1: we'll go with the no, mile. That that,
0: that, that that doesn't color this answer whatsoever. But I just think he's a good guy. So.
1: That that name comes up with monotonous regularity, and I think there's there's a lot for any other emerging tour pro or existing tour yes. pro. Just sit back and watch how he carries himself. Hundred um, percent, and yeah. he's the Arnold Palmer of the, the modern age. He's yeah. the pod. And Palmer. I think
0: honestly, when you look at the, the thing that I, you know, I'm personally really proud of the fact that. I feel like the people that we have on our roster also represents that. I think everybody that, that we get the privilege to work with here at TaylorMade, I'm delighted to work with all of them. I never feel like, Oh, I got to put up with this guy's shenanigans. Like, and again, not to go back in the past, but that was not always the case. There was definitely players that was like, this guy's hard work and like overly picky about stuff. These guys are all super nice, super polite. They don't all, all, they're not all super chatty or whatever. Um, but, yeah, they're all, they're all really nice people, so that's great.
1: Okay, we just got to get Rory to stop throwing clubs. And on that note, we're going to bring this Tenuous Links podcast <laughs> to a close. I want you to thank today's guest, uh, Tomo Beistit from TailorMade. Thanks, Tomo, for joining us.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me, Phil. It's great to catch up with you again, even if it's in this format. Hopefully, see you in person here pretty soon.
1: You're always welcome down here, and you're welcome to bring free stuff. Um, remember, remember you can subscribe at golfbarons.com for all our show updates, uh, podcast updates and magazines and everything else uh, and on that note, Barons will close the podcast and remember to add some swagger to your swing